Due to recent events, that being the U.S. withdrawal of forces from Afghanistan, I thought it'd be a good time to discuss war and conflict. However, before I begin, I think it's warranted to explain my somewhat recusal from current events. I find such topics to be very politically heated. People tend to attach their opinion on these events to their personality and don't have the benefit of hindsight to show more apparent evidence. People tend to build a personal connection to certain figures and beliefs. When those entities are questioned, people take it as a personal attack. I am, of course, not impervious to this. So I also recuse myself because I don't wish to have my mind clouded by personal attachments to the ideas and people in question. The concept of an open marketplace of ideas in which nothing is above questioning, including myself and my beliefs, is a core tenet of my political and philosophical framework. All that is why today I will not be discussing my opinion on the withdrawal. It was a necessity, albeit poorly executed. Rather, I would like to first discuss what makes a country a country, that is to say, what exactly are the requirements and how did we determine them. Second, I think it's warranted to discuss my views on warfare as a whole, when and if it is needed, what should it look like, and why I think we have wars. Let us begin by defining what a country is, as well as a nation. When I refer to a country, what I really mean is a state, that is to say, a set territory with a governing body of some sorts. I use the term country here simply because the term state can get a little confusing, especially as states can be part of a larger country. So for the most part today, when I use the term country, I mean a sovereign state. That is a set territory with a governing body that is able to make treaties with other states. Many people also use the term country in place of nation, but I am making a distinction. A nation is a group of people who share commonalities like culture, history, or some other distinct feature. Since the 19th century, it's become very common to see nation-states, that is, a country unified mainly based on the shared nationality. An example I give is that of Germany, who in the 1800s was a collection of states usually unified under the Holy Roman Empire and later the German Confederation. If you lived in Germany during this time, your nationality may have been Germanic, but your country was Prussia or Bavaria or some other Germanic country. For me, nationality is simply a way to get people to be proud of the society in which they participate. What truly matters is the state or country itself. I would suggest that although nation-states are fine, people must be wary of becoming too concerned with their nationality. When people become too prideful of their nation, they sow distrust in the state. They start to see other nationalities as not having an interest in them, and in turn begin to lack interest in other nationalities. That is to say, sectioning oneself off from the rest of the world based on differences you have is very slippery slope. Why is this? Because at its core, nationality is an us-versus-them scenario, with the notion that me and my people are different from them and their people, based on arbitrary differences. The greatest internal threat to a country are twofold. Either A, perceived differences between the people and the government that are ideologically or reasonably based, 
That is to say, a government that abuses its power or does a poor job governing, for example, in the case of a group of rich oligarchs ruling over the masses, there exists a tangible difference in material well-being between the two. And if the oligarchs aren't acting in the people's best interest, it is reasonable to remove them from their base of power. Or scenario B, perceived differences between the people and the government that are arbitrary or unreasonably based. If the masses drink coffee and the rulers drink tea, an overall of the overhaul of the government would be unreasonable because the distinction has no basis in reality. Even more concerning is when a government led by a certain group of people gives preference to members of its own nationality, as we saw in many of the empires of old and even still see in the modern world. This is the problem we face when it comes to nationality. People quickly forget to keep themselves in check because the distinction they are making is not based on a difference that matters in any way. I am a firm believer in egalitarianism. That is, I believe all people should be treated as equal and be given equal protections and opportunities. Furthermore, I am a firm believer in humanistic values, that we must make do with what we've got and take care of each other. So I firmly reject the notion that culture and shared history is, is anything more than a conversation piece or a fun tradition. We are all humans, and we must recognize that. Now, of course, there are people who have been drawn the short straw, so to say, in the past, and they may need our help going forward, and we should give it to them with open arms and look to the past as a warning sign to make sure we move onwards and upwards to greater things as an entire species. Keep this in mind when people attempt to play up jinduistic nature in all of us. Division is never the answer and is simply a form of primitive us-versus-them mentalities. A country is the governing body and the people that are governed, and we are all in this together. Before we move on to my views on warfare, I would like to briefly mention linguistic ties, which are somewhat different from other characteristics of nationality. At first glance, it might appear that linguistic differences are in fact tangible ones, differences that do in fact exist and affect how we communicate. Not to drop this and then run, but I do consider myself a linguistic homogenist. First, let me make clear that A, I do not want languages to be preserved. I do want languages to be preserved, and B, I don't think English has to be the language we all use. Quite frankly, I don't have enough knowledge in linguistic tendencies to know what the optimal language is, and I very much doubt it is in current use. Rather, all I am suggesting is that language is a mere tool we use to communicate with one another. Difference in language is a pragmatic one, meaning a government who speaks different languages requires translators, which can be quite the hassle. This does not constitute a difference in people, rather a difference in tools used. Building a house with different screws would be annoying, as you would constantly have to change out the drill bit. But I sincerely doubt anyone would say there is a difference between a Phillips head user and a flathead user, outside of which screws they use. To summarize my view, I see language as a tool we use to communicate. I think the end goal is for everyone to use the most optimized tool, and I believe that using different languages right now does not constitute a variation between, variation between people other than the words they use. 
As I mentioned earlier, I am not in favor of the Afghan war. However, I wouldn't consider myself a pacifist. I believe the government reserves the right to aggress upon or defend from other governments. An obtuse observer and believer in liberal democracy may have noticed that there was no caveat to my statement. I do believe the government can continue an unpopular war. However, I also would say the people can recede their compliance in a war they see as unpopular. Essentially, it's the question, would you support your country even if you think it's wrong? The government is welcome, in my mind, to push that border, as this is, in my opinion, one of the rare instances where the whims of the people could be detrimental to the war effort. However, there is a line in the sand for many people that they are just not willing to cross, and the government may soon find itself with little to no support if they continue to take reckless actions. What I'm saying is that I don't believe as soon as a war becomes unpopular, the government must pull out. I say this because if the system is set up correctly, governments that want to stay in power will comply with the people and pull out unless the war is a necessity, which will drive them to continue on. Now, I may receive some criticism from those on the left who lack trust in the government. Rightfully so, if I may add, because it is true that in the current system, there exists massive corruption. My assessment of war requires that if there are any rotten apples, that is, people who wish to abuse their power, their end goal is the accumulation of power, something that is threatened by unpopularity. The issue of war overlaps with another issue faced by America, that is, the existence of private money in the government. I'll try and keep it concise, but many politicians simply look for the cash that they can get from private interests, interests like weapons manufacturers, who benefit from war. They are not the puppeteers, rather they are the puppets. And I'll concede this, that as we have just seen with Afghanistan, as long as companies and private in individuals are able to pay off public officials, and the people are forced to choose between bad or less bad, we will continue to have corruption, but I am discussing my views from a principled lens. So to clarify, I am assuming that reforms would go hand in hand. This is because the problems faced by America are largely connected, and if you work to fix one, you should work to fix all. To summarize, my views on war is that the government is given the right by the people to manage diplomatic relations with other countries and governments, and this includes the full deck of cards, so to say. And the government, acting in good faith, as with all things, is maintained by the approval of the people. Thus, as approval for the war and government goes down, the cost of the war will increase. And there should be a point where the cost is too great for the war to continue. All this assuming that the government's intent is at least focused on the well-being of the country or their continued position of power. However, there is another aspect of warfare that is, international law. Although I have quite a few issues with globalism, especially economically, my end goal is global unity and the existence of a human-wide union based on the common struggle of human existence. And so, I support initiatives like the European Union, and especially the United Nations, and in fact, I argue for larger and more federal systems across continents and the globe. So one thing I take very seriously is international law, and it's something I have somewhat mixed feelings about. When countries agree to participate in larger confederations, 
they give up some of their sovereignty in exchange for the benefits that come along with larger unions. I just said that countries receive the right to engage in warfare from their people, but they can also give this right away. A non-aggression pact between two countries forfeits the government's right to declare war on the state with which the agreement was signed. It is these kinds of agreements that I think should be, always be maintained. This is for the same reason that I abide by the law, even when it might not be favorable, so that I can rely on others to do the same. I plan to discuss this at a later date, but to me, morality is subjective, meaning human-created, and for me, immoral actions are actions made by people who participate in society that go against the social contract or manipulate the social contract by acting in bad faith. All this is to say, when the government agrees to a pact, it must abide by it. Furthermore, there are certain rules of war that this applies to. Don't attack those who have surrendered. Civilians or diplomats are all practically based so that a war can be undertaken. They have their basis in reason. However, I also believe that a government is responsible to its people. As governments emerge, I hope one day there will be a government responsible to all people. But when you participate in a society, you are responsible to your society. There are some universal principles, but in the end, a society formulates a government, and the government is responsible for those who gave it power. In other words, its citizens. So although I would suggest the government follows all rules of war and acts in as humane a manner as possible, I would still support my government, even if it didn't. So long as it does not pass my line in the sand, as mentioned before. Since this episode also includes lots of current events, I think this is a good point to bring up the Iran nuclear deal. The U.S. pulled out and violated, in a sense, its side of the contract. My point essentially is that governments are able to act in the interest of their own citizens, but they also have to understand that this comes at a loss of credibility. So when the United States pulls out of deals like the Paris Climate Agreement or the Iran deal or really any deal, when it violates international law, it destroys its own credibility and then it can't expect other people to go along with it. So for example, when the U.S. deposed Gaddafi in Libya. It asked him to give up, you know, give up his weapons, and he complied because he didn't want the U.S. to topple him. And then the U.S. toppled him. And I think that people kind of have to realize that then, when the U.S. asks Kim Jong Un to give up his weapons, there's going to be that same response because the U.S. isn't seen as a credible figure. So I really would warn against violating international laws. It kind of destroys one's credibility. The reason I won't say firmly that you have to abide by international law is because I think there are certain examples where strategically the costs to your own citizens in your own country just to comply with international law simply aren't worth it. But as, as a general rule, I think you should try and stay in line with international law as much as possible. It also should be recognized that when the government does break the rules of war, it has lost its moral high ground, so to say. It will have trouble judging others who have committed war crimes going forward, as it is no longer pure, and the justifications it used are still valid for its oppositions. This is where I diverge from a utilitarian framework, that being the notion that we should maximize happiness and minimize suffering. I agree that it is largely the consequences that matter, and not the user's interaction. What I mean by that is allowing a bad thing to happen is preferable to dirtying one's hands. 
However, in my opinion, a utilitarian, such as myself, voids my own moral framework when the social contract is available. This is because of my previous point, that the moral high ground comes from having consistency with one's views, and in order to judge deviants for their actions, I must work to not be a deviant myself, even if it benefits my own country, because this is a short-term gain for the long-term sacrifice that is an unstable social contract. To return to the problem at hand, all of that is why I believe the government should be abide, for the most part, by international law, for the simple sake of consistency and the maintaining of the social contract. To wrap up this video, I'd like to use a concept presented to me by a good friend. That is, that we must always weigh morality and stability. Certain actions are clearly immoral until we cross a line, and suddenly they are not. Morality isn't written in stone. It's subjective, something we have created and reasoned through. Actions themselves cannot be thrown into moral or immoral. They are far more nuanced than that. Factors like the situation and the judge must also be taken into account. Nowhere is this more apparent than war, which is a nasty business with massive costs and implications. I am not disillusioned into thinking we won't have another war, in fact, I'd say it's nearly inevitable. But as a species, we are faced by some massive hurdles that we must overcome. And we can only ever hope to do that is and the only way we can ever hope to do that is if we can commit to working together and helping each other out to achieve global prosperity. Because we are all human and we are all in this together. I know that was a pretty good ending to leave off the video, but this is one of those less scripted parts. As I was listening back to the podcast, it kind of sounds like I was a little ambiguous towards the end, and I think it could be misinterpreted as me justifying war crimes and stuff like that, and I don't want to be mixed up with that. Um, what I'm saying is that, for example, when the U.S. does commit war crimes, it is going to have trouble judging other countries. So like when the U.S. drops napalm, on civilians in Vietnam, it can't then go and look at other dictators and countries and say, oh, look what you're doing to these people. Oh, that's horrible. I think it'll have trouble doing that. So that's what I'm kind of saying. I want it to be consistency. That's what I meant by like the judge, where actions are immoral until you look at them from a different lens. And for example, you could say that something, I'm just going to say, I don't want to think of a dictator. So this dictator did is immoral. Um, and then that dictator can say, well, I'm being judged by you, the United States, you committed these other things. So either you have to admit that you're immoral, in which case you're a bad judge. Uh, I don't want to be judged as being immoral by another person who's immoral. Um, or you have to admit that these actions aren't wrong, or you have to find some distinction. And that's the issue that I kind of see. Anyways, this has been the Unis Central Podcast. Andrew Gould, signing off.